You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. And so I said that this is my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. And the reason for it, there's so many reasons for it, but I, I want to give you three uh, main reasons why John 17 is my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. Uh, number one is because this prayer right here gives us insight into what Jesus is up to right now. Right? Like we know scripturally that Jesus Christ is our mediator, that he is seated at the right hand of the Father, that he has ascended, and he is making intercession for you and I, that he is praying for us all the day long. We know that we have a great high priest that stands in for us, that there is one mediator between God and man. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And this Lord is not just making that mediation for us on the day that we stand at the judgment seat, but each and every day making an appeal before the Father for you and I. He prays for you. And this prayer here gives us some insight into what those prayers are like. And I just think that's awesome. Number two, main reason why this is my favorite chapter in the Bible is because it gives us insight into the inner person of Jesus Christ, into the things that he desires and the things that he wants. Like all of the gospel accounts, they tell us a lot about what he had to say, and, and then it shows us how the disciples were confused about what he had to say, and it also documents his actions, all of it incredible. But this prayer shows us some of the stuff that's going on in the mind of Jesus, some of the stuff that's going on in his heart, his deep desires. And I think that's awesome. And then, of course, the third thing is that it's the only one we've got. I just love that this is the one prayer that, that they chose to document for us. God and the Son were like, let's, let's leave this one for them. Right? Jesus was retreating all the time to talk to his Father. He was always praying, and this was the one that they give to us. I mean, maybe you can count, like, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do and things like this. But, like, this is a prayer prayer, right? a like, big, big prayer, and so I love it. And so that's why we're going to take three, work, three weeks to work our way through it and do it in, in three different segments. And so let's jump into it this, this morning. In, in chapter 17, verse 1, it starts like this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. And so when we say when Jesus had spoken these words, like, well, what words, right? Well, the words that we were talking about last week, like, we, like hopefully you were here. If you weren't, quick recap, last week Jesus was talking about childbirth. You're like, what? No, he was talking about turning sorrow into joy last week. And centrally, there was a verse last week in verse, uh, verse 20 in chapter 16 where Jesus says, Truly, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because, listen, her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. And so, like, he's, he says this, after he says these things, after he's spoken these words, verse 1, he lifts up his eyes to heaven, and Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. What hour? The hour has come. She has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers her anguish, for life has been brought forth. Jesus has just promised his disciples that I'm going to turn your sorrow into joy when the hour comes, where through sorrow, joy is going to burst forth as life springs forth through the anguish, and you will remember your anguish no more. That hour has come. What hour? This hour. Within five hours of this prayer, they're going to crucify Jesus. That hour is the one we're talking about where, 
where through labor pains, joy springs forth, life springs forth. And I tell you, this hour, we've been hearing about it all throughout this gospel. You read any of the gospels, you're going to read about this hour, like all the way back in the beginning, the wedding at Cana. Uh, Jesus' mother says to him, Jesus, they've run out of wine. He says, what does that have to do with me, woman? My hour has not yet come, right? The Pharisees try to seize him. It says that the authorities were unable to seize him because his hour had not yet come. The demoniac, when he comes into contact with Jesus, says, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? It is not yet time, right? The hour has been approaching, but it has not yet been so. And here Jesus is saying, the hour has come. Father, the hour has come. For what? To glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now, when Jesus is praying for himself and he prays for his glory, he's like the only one who's allowed to do that, right? Like, I can't stand in front of you this morning say, as Pastor Adam and just pray, Father God, glorify me before your people, right? There's only one who, without sin and without flaw, can ask the Father to glorify him, and it is the Son. We're going to explore this morning a little bit about why it is that the Son can be singularly focused in his prayer before his death on his glory. And he gives us this first reason, glorify me, why? That I may glorify you. He says, let's put on a show. Glorify me that I can glorify you, Father. In what way? Since you've given him, me, Jesus, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I love short passages like this because I can just read it and then take portions and stick them together and you're not going to lose your way. So several times he asks for God the Father to glorify him, and he says it on account of really two things. He says, glorify me because of who I am, and glorify me because of what I've done, and that the chief purpose of it would be that I could glorify you, and that you could glorify me in your presence as it was before the world existed. So I want to take these one at a time. Jesus says, glorify me because of who I am. Since, glorify me so that I may glorify you since Verse 2, you've given me authority over all flesh. You've given me authority over all flesh. Listen, you will come across people in your walk in the faith that will question or they will wonder, did Jesus ever claim to be God? Like you could start typing that into Google and it will pre-populate for you. It's a very common question. Did Jesus ever claim to be God? Or maybe a better way to frame it would be, it was Jesus' own self-understanding that he was one with God, that he was God. Was, and, and church, first I want to hold out to you that there should come a day in every Christian's life where you never have to Google that, okay? Where, where maybe you couldn't pull the chapter in verse, but that just through saturating yourself in the Word of God that you arrive at the place where there's no other place to land, because it just is jumping off the page over and again. And this is one of the passages where you can see that. Jesus has just said that all authority over flesh has been given to him. All authority over flesh given to him. Who has all authority over flesh? God. And so Jesus is either blaspheming in a major way or is teaching us something here. 
He claims to have all authority over flesh. And then he doubles down on that and says, and has the power to give eternal life to all who has been given to him. So he's got all authority over flesh and power to give eternal life. Yeah, I would say Jesus understands himself to be God. And if that's not enough, he says, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Before the world existed? He understands something about himself that we are to understand if we are to believe in him. Now, when we talk about glorifying Jesus in the, in the presence of God with the glory that he had with him before the world existed, we're talking about the aseity of God. This is a, a concept that, you see, that you'll hear like in theological circles. The doctrine of the aseity of God is that nothing gives him life and nothing can take his life, that he always is. I know we struggle with this. Like the doctrines of the Trinity are hard. Doctrines of the eternality of God are hard because we are neither three persons and we are not eternal. We are eternal now, but we don't understand eternity because we have a beginning, right? But it's not actually hard to understand as a concept. We all rightly understand that every created thing has a beginning and that all created things are always becoming, always becoming, always becoming, eventually becoming death and then decomposing into becoming dirt, right? Becoming, 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 beginnings and ends. And so we work it backwards, and the great conundrum of all humanity is to answer, what's the thing that never became in order that all other things could become from it? What is the uncreated thing? There must be an origin with no origin. And Jesus is like, hey, what's up? Right? Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Yeah, he understood himself to be God. And so there is only one who can ask the Father to glorify him and that in glorifying him, it gives glory to the Father and it would be the second person of the Godhead, the Son. Glorifying him is to glorify the Father and to glorify the Father is to glorify the Son. And this is the chief prayer that Christ has for himself here in his final hour. God, the hour has come. The baby is coming. All of creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth until now, but it is time to spring forth life. Glorify me that I may glorify you, Jesus says, because I've got authority over all flesh. That's who I am. Because I've got the power to give eternal life so I can do. That's who I am. Because I was before the world existed glorify me. I've got every right to make that claim. And there's only one to whom God the Father will say, let's do it. And it's to Jesus. And John made this argument from the beginning. Like, the, like the, this gospel is built on that introduction. You've heard it so many times. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and, and everything was made through Him, and, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And in Him was life. And Jesus is just making this claim of himself. It's like, guys, you don't have to trust John on this. You can, but you can trust Jesus on this. He said it. In me is life. The power to give eternal life. And so here Jesus makes a claim of himself, not just that he's the creator of all physical life, but that he is the giver of eternal life. It's in him. This is why he is worthy of of all glory. 
And then he says, glorify me not only since, of, since I am the one with authority over flesh and since I give eternal life, but also I have accomplished the work that you have gave me to do. Jesus says, it, I've done it. That thing for which you sent me into the earth, when I departed from that eternal throne from before the world began, when I emptied myself of, a glo- of my glory, when the fullness of time had come, when you sent me to be born of a woman, when I counted equality with you, God, as something not to be held on to, but I emptied myself into the form of a baby, the form of a servant, lowered myself even more obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and therefore God has highly exalted him so that his name is above every name that is named, and, and that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This Jesus says, I've done it. That thing that you sent me to do, it's done. So he's looked past this moment in prayer to five hours from now where he's going to speak these exact words. I've accomplished the work that you gave me to do. What will he say? It is accomplished, finished. This work, what work? Saving work for you and I. The eternal life-giving work for you and I. See, if Jesus Christ came not to be served, but to lay down his life as a ransom for many, I think it's right for us to ask the question, I don't, how is this love? Right, like, I might ask you, let me ask you, like, how do you know that God loves you? And you might answer back to me with scripture. Well, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. And I might just drill down a little bit. Well, how is that love? Why is that love? Well, because Jesus died for me. He said, no greater love has one than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. He died for me. Why? How is Jesus dying for you, love? How is Jesus dying for you? Well, he, he took the penalty of sin, which in the wages of sin are, are death. And so he, he conquered death for me. And, and hell, why, why is this love? Well, because hell's terrible. I don't want to go to hell. He's, he spared me from hell, from, from wrath, from, from God's judgment. How, how is this love? What, what good does this do for you? Well, instead of hell, I get to go to heaven. Okay, how is this love? And we can be right, doctrinally, layer upon layer upon layer, and answer scripturally, and get all the way there, and terminate on heaven, and then heaven is this ambiguous answer. Well, why is that love? Well, heaven's awesome. All my friends are going to be there. I heard the streets are lined with gold. What is it that makes this love? Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Listen to this. Chapter 17, verse 3. This is eternal life, that they know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So if I ask you, what is eternal life? Would you flip to chapter 17 to answer me? Maybe you've never thought about it this way. What is eternal life? Because Jesus says it's to know us. To know 
us. And I don't mean no, I mean no. To know us. How did Jesus love you? By bringing you into his presence and bringing his presence into you, by ushering you into the presence of the glory of God. What was formerly barred to you is now sealed for you. This is eternal life, that they know you, that they know you. And so next time somebody asks you, how do you know that God loves you? Well, because he sent his son. Well, how is that love? Well, because his son made him known to me. This is what he says. I'm not going to steal from the, from the next sermon, but he says, I've manifested your name to the people who you gave to me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they've kept your word, and now they know that everything you've given me is from, is from you, for I've given them the words you gave me, and they've received them. Like, his whole focus when he starts moving over to his friends and, and praying for them is, I did it. Did what? Made them known to you. And I'm not talking about known. I'm talking about known as displayed in the cross. I'm talking about known as the Holy Spirit taking up residence in you and testifying to you the things of Christ over and again, all the stuff he's been teaching. And I'm talking about a Jesus resurrected, seated at the right hand of the Father today, so that one day you're not talking about, how do I know? Well, because his presence is right here, but his presence is right here. That kind of known. Only he can do this. This is why he could say, glorify me. See, glorifying, saying glorify me is the exact same thing as saying love them. Because to display his glory before you is to love you. It's to give you eternal life. To bring you into the knowledge of his glory. And we make this a head exercise. Because the Greeks stole the word knowledge and then we just keep thinking about it the way they think about it, right? But I don't mean no. If belief, if faith, if knowing God is something that is primarily taking place up here, then we've just said there's a whole bunch of people who can never know him. And we don't mean that, do we? I'm not talking about mental ascension to some tr doctrinal truths about God. I'm talking about knowing him. I'm talking about him taking over the controls of your life because the Holy Spirit has baptized you into new life and made you a new creation so that he's taken up residence in you and has sealed you for eternity where one day you will behold him with your eyes and walk with him experientially forever. I'm talking about knowing him the way that Jesus Christ the Son knows him. And that is not like a book. That's like a relationship. It's more than a relationship. It's like unity, it's union, it's oneness. It's to know him because you have been brought in to the being of God. And that would be stealing from the part that he prays for me. I'll do it for a second. Verse 24, same chapter, Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you've sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known why that the love with which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. We're not talking about thinking about something. We're talking about something being in you. 
The love of God being in you and Christ himself being in you. This is to know God. And Christ is arguing that the world does not know me, but they do because I've made you known. How? Well, I'm in them. He's in you, church. You know God. And so avoid irreverent babble. Somebody wants to say to you, prove it, explain it, give me all of the mental arguments that I can ascend to it with you. Answer back, I didn't ascend to it. You don't get there by thinking. How do I know? Because he's in me. If, if you don't know, he's not in you. Ask for the Holy Spirit. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is eternal life, that they know you, that they know us, the true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. And so here, let's read it all together so that we can see the flow, so that we can think about our takeaway here. Jesus spoke these words about turning sorrow and anguish into joy. And then he lifts his eyes to heaven and he says, Father, hour is here. It's time. It's go time. Let's go through pain. Let's bring forth joy. How? Glorify the Son that the Son may glorify you since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished this work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. The flow for us is to look at the cross as the pains of childbirth, number one. We did labor on this last week. The cross is merely the pains of childbirth, and then we remember the anguish no more because life has been brought forth into the world. So that means that when he says all authority over flesh and of life is his, this is Pastor Brett's favorite verse, favorite scene in the Passion. He loves to talk about it, right? Don't you know that I have authority to pardon you or to turn you over? You have no authority over me except that which has been given to you by God, right? What we're talking about is a Jesus who willingly went to the cross to carry out the work that was given to him by God. By God. It means that even when it looks like sin is winning, it never is because all flesh yields to his authority. We can do nothing to thwart his plan. His plan, even plan A, if I may be so bold, was to march to that cross for the redemption of the world. He didn't rework it on account of the flesh. The flesh was always under his authority. This is really good news. Because just like sin couldn't betray him that first time, you can't crucify him again. Because the world's been trying to keep this guy dead. I'm not kidding, guys. Like, however we want to dice it, the world will do anything to kill Jesus, silence Jesus, and yet he lives. He lives and he lives and he lives and his kingdom keeps spreading. Why? Because he has authority over flesh and he has authority to give eternal life and he just keeps doing it. There's nothing you can do about it. That's good news. Because you would if you could. 
said, for us to have eternal life, we need to know him, but we can't know him because our minds were darkened. So what does, he do? what does he do? He gives us a new mind, makes us a new creation, baptizes us in the Holy Spirit to make us a new creation. This is the accomplishing work that Jesus is referring to, not a single moment in Calvary. This was the crescendo of showing us the character of God, the love of God. But the result was the birth of the church. The product was you. Also good news. And so he says he's accomplished the work, which means you don't have to help him. It's the other, other application. The work that Jesus was given to do, he said he's done. And so what is your role? Well, not to help him accomplish the work that God gave him to do. What's the work he gave him to do? To come and lay down his life as a ransom for many. He's done that. So why are you still trying to earn righteousness? Why are you still trying to earn favor with God by good works? Why are you still trying to stitch up this, the curtain? Your body is the temple of the living God. You know him. He knows you. What are you doing? So now glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existence. This is the last application. Jesus is now in the presence of God the Father and you're not. Okay, the presence of God through the Holy Spirit is always in you. And you can see him in his creation, whether in the microscope or the telescope, everything is screaming the majesty, the majesty and the divine creativity of God. And it's all wonderful, but you are not in his presence the way that Jesus is. Jesus says here in his first five verses of his, of his prayer, Father, I'm coming home. And so what we also see here is what's next for us. When he prays for us, again, I'll save it for the future, that his desire is that we would be with him where he is. What we know about Jesus again and again is he gets whatever he wants. And what he wants is for you to be with him. So you could take that to the bank too. Like, come on. We will one day look back at the days that we walked by faith as a light and momentary affliction as we behold with our eyes what we knew in the spirit to be true. And you can pray in the Holy Spirit, as a new creation, you can pray today the perfect will of God. You can. It can, it can be done. I doubt you, you often do it, but it can be done in the Holy Spirit because there's that tension between the Spirit and the flesh. The sermon for another day. But Jesus said that because of the Holy Spirit in you, that you can go right into the throne room of grace. You can pray to the Father. And he receives your prayers directly. And you can even pray within the will of the Father because the will is made known to you through the Holy Spirit and through His Word. All of that is true. But what I know is that the perfect prayer is being prayed day by day, not just the Holy Spirit, true, but Jesus Christ himself at the right hand of the Father today for you. And that should give us confidence in prayer. One, because he's in us, wanting to do through you what he's doing independently of you all the time. And so we have a real privilege in joining him in it. 
And since prayer has been such a theme over the last two chapters of John, as, as Jesus is preparing them to, to endure this light and momentary affliction, this brief window before they'll join him in the presence of God, beholding his glory in its fullness, then when we look to how he prays, this really matters. We get to see what, he, what, is, what he's praying for for us and then join him in those prayers. Like, are you going to, if you just pray this, you like, can know for a fact that you're praying the will of God. It's really cool. I know that we love um, the Lord's Prayer. I never understood why they called it the Lord's Prayer because it's like the disciples' prayer. This is the Lord's Prayer, you know? The, the disciples' prayer is the disciple because like, in that one, he teaches them to like, ask for forgiveness and things like that, and Jesus never had to do that. So that's not his prayer. That's our prayer, right? I love the Lord's Prayer, too. It's like up there. But the Lord's Prayer, or the high priestly prayer, he says, glorify me. And so there are still more, uh, this is my concluding point, there's, there's still more childbirth pains, right? There's still, like, you're still, there's still suffering on the face of the earth. You're still laboring now on this side of eternity to get through this light and momentary affliction with your eyes fixed on Christ for the glory that is to be revealed. But there is an assurance that even these labor pains, as creation continues to groan, it's no longer groaning that the Messiah would come and conquer sin and death. That part is done. Now what we're groaning for, we learn, is the revealing of the sons of God. The remaining labor pain is not that anything would be done for you. It's that what has been done for you would be revealed to all creation. That's really good news. Let's pray.